morning. Welcome to Rising. I'm here bright and early. <laughs> very, very early this morning. Uh, so thank you so much for joining. I'm here with Robbie today. It's the two of us hosting the show. It's very early, so, uh, so you know, here I am. <laughs> here we are. But I have good news. My voice is finally back. <laughs> I had bronchitis last week and had to, like, quit the show in the middle of it because I literally couldn't talk anymore. Yeah. Uh, it was horrible. So I, I was censored, first censored by YouTube, then censored by my own mortal failing body. Very sad. Yeah, your body was like, oh, what are you talking about, Robbie? We gotta... <laughs> I said <laughs> ivermectin, and then that was it. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, All right well, well, what do we have on today's show? Sure. Well, today we have Chris Jackson and Rachel Bovard for our rising panel to discuss dire midterm warnings for Democrats. Then Rachel yeah. will stick around to break down the questions surrounding now Twitter owner Elon Musk's ties to China following his acquisition of the social media platform. Don't worry, of course, I will go over the entire meltdown over Musk uh, on my radar today. Definitely looking forward to that. There has been an absolute meltdown over that. Um, all right, so today no radar for me because I made a deal with the producers <laughs> that when I when I have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to do the show, the whole show, then I don't need to stay up all night writing a radar. <laughs> so no Fair radar enough. for me today. Fair but, enough. But we will talk about a hit piece that was actually published about me uh, yesterday, so we will talk about that. But let's get into our top line for today. So Fauci said that it's disturbing that a federal court would rule against the CDC's COVID-19 travel mask mandate, adding that this is not a judicial matter. Let's listen. Both surprised and disappointed because those types of things really are the purview of the CDC. This is a public health issue. And for a court to come in, and if you look at the rationale for that, it really is not particularly firm. And we are concerned about that, about courts getting involved in things that are unequivocally public health decisions. I mean, this is a CDC issue. It should not, should not have been a court issue. The Wall Street Journal's editorial board went after Fauci's comments in a piece titled All Hail Anthony Fauci. It says, quote, Government at, governments at all levels have abused their emergency powers during the pandemic. Some deference to public health officials might have been warranted amid the uncertainty early in the pandemic. But as Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote in November 2020, even if the Constitution has taken a holiday during this pandemic, it cannot become a sabbatical. Amen to that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is not a, a, at all surprising to hear Dr. Fauci say this because, right. you know, he is over the course of the pandemic, the mask has slipped more and more and more. And he has just, you know, revealed himself to be this absolute, you know, creature of the federal health bureaucracy and one whose main interest is in protecting its power, growing its power and influence. So it's not actually surprising that he would say, I, you know, I wouldn't surprise the other way. If he'd said, yeah, well, you know, the court gets to make these kinds of decisions and we have to abide by that, that would have that would have truly shocked me. I don't know about you, Kim. Well, I mean, you know, ideally the guy knows about the Constitution, right? I mean, ideally right. he understands checks and balances, but clearly in this statement he didn't, and that's why he's being eviscerated for it. You know, look, what's even, I think, more disturbing, you know, he says, oh, it's disturbing that the courts could overturn the CDC. No, what is actually more disturbing is that unelected health officials can regulate our lives like this without any sort of checks and balances. That would be, you know, these health czars going and growing in power would be actually more disturbing, especially if they can't back up why they're mandating us to do certain things. But, you know, the CDC is supposed to be an advisory board giving guidelines, and they have gone well over that line and instead are now issuing mandates and demands. And that is when the court steps in and says, 
hey, you know, uh, there, there's actual, you know, you can make guidelines and then the lawmakers need to be the ones to actually issue the laws. And then the courts decide whether or not those laws are legal. That's the way right. the, you know, the ex executive to the legislative branch to the right. judicial branch works. Right. That's um, so clear. But, right. Yeah. right. The, you know, it would be one thing. Right. I oppose mass mandates, vaccine mandates, et cetera. But you know, if Congress passed a law saying we, you know, we need to have this, we're giving new, given the reality of COVID-19, we're giving new authority to the CDC to implement these kinds of things. Well, that will be one thing. That did not right. happen. The CDC claimed under centuries old guidance that it had the right to do all these things. And as for, you know, what Fauci said about, well, you know, this should be a, a health matter and that should not be under the court's purview. You could say that about literally any court decision. Anything, like, yeah. what you know, Brown v. Brown v. Board, that was just a schooling decision. Yeah. I mean, that, that's literally <laughs> what the segregationists said, right? How dare the, right. you know, national court get involved in a local schooling issue? Or, or you know, the, when the court told, what, it was Andrew Jackson to stop stop, you know, butchering the Native Americans. And he said, well, no, you know, I, I go ahead and enforce it then. Right. That there's a long history of people who don't want to obey the court saying, well, no, this isn't this isn't really their thing. We should get to do whatever we want. It, it, like if there's nothing new about that. But of course, Fauci in yeah. his arrogance thinks, well, yes, well, the health of because I'm sure in all those cases he would say, well, of course they have to follow the court. But in his case, it's a special exception because, you know, he's a super important health official. Yeah, it's really, I mean, you make a really great point. You could apply that to absolutely everything. I mean, the court is not legislating. They're, they at least try not to legislate from the bench. What they do is they just look at legislation or look at these sorts of executive orders, you know, or, or from the executive branch, and then and then they decide whether or not they're actually constitutional. Um, so you really could, I mean, you could say that about Roe v. Wade, right? Like that is a medical issue, not something that should be decided by the courts, I suppose. You could say that about marriage issues. You could say, mm -hmm. oh, well, that's like a religious issue and it shouldn't mm -hmm. be decided by the courts. I mean, everything, ideally nothing's decided by the courts, I suppose. Like we can all work it out without having to go to court and having to sue one another. That would be an ideal unicorn utopia world, <laughs> I suppose, right? right? But unfortunately, there is overreach and that is why these cases end up in court. And so look, you know, Biden seems to understand this. He countered that when Fauci making these sorts of statements saying, well, this shouldn't have gone to the courts. The Biden administration, on the other hand, has said, yeah, OK, uh, you know, the courts decide what they do. But but we think the decision was wrong. And so that's why we're going to appeal it. So rather than saying, gosh, the court shouldn't be involved, the Biden administration is at least saying, well, we got to utilize the courts. We just think the court made a wrong decision. And that is. You know, I, I, I can't, re you know, I'm, I don't mm -hmm. mean to, like, make any excuses or give any passes for Anthony Fauci, but he is not, you know, a, an actual politician or anybody that works in the legal field or, you know, he's a scientist experimenting on puppies. So I guess he wouldn't maybe know exactly how the process is supposed to work politically. A lot of Americans don't fully understand it. Maybe Fauci's one of them, I suppose. But, yeah, I mean, his correct response should have been the courts decided right. we're going to challenge it in court. We don't agree with the court. The CDC is going to present better evidence the next time around. And that's really what happened. I mean, the CDC didn't present to the to the courts what the courts determined to be sufficient evidence for the mask mandate to be continuing. And if they want to continue it on, they need to present better evidence in their appeal. Well, and the I courts, suppose. I think that the courts right now, given the realities of our completely dysfunctional Congress 
and you know the the it's so much there's so much fighting there's so so little laws coming out of congress cuz you actually have to have you have to have a, the the president or a veto proof majority and you know you, like biden can't even you know can't even get the signature legislation he ran on passed which is fine i'm against it for, for me but i i can understand the frustration thinking like oh i need six, you know so how many people do you need to actually get uh, laws to go forward so given that reality congress is at, uh, uh, the courts rather even though they were not intended to fulfill a legislative function, are almost serving as a legislative function because they are less partisan and less gridlocked and less, uh, they're basically just less screwed up than the rest of the branches of, of government right now. Maybe they'll catch up. But so there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think there's a lot of de facto legislating being left to the courts. Uh, and, but also, yeah. but everybody gets upset. You know, we want, like, the, the idea of our system, right, is that some, some liberties, some rights are protected by our founding documents, by our Bill of Rights. And even if some administrative agency or a, or a majority of voters or legislators pass something that violates that, even if there's majority support for it, the, like the whole premise of our system is that it is appropriate for the court to say, no, actually, it doesn't matter how badly the experts think this is right or how or even if this is popular among the people or the president wants it this violates the first amendment or the second amendment or the fifth amendment right. or and you just and you can't do that and that is what we accept in our system we're not a pure democracy we're not a technocracy we are governed by a healthy respect and protection for certain rights that we decided are not up for negotiation you know no matter what people say yeah. Well, and there's a lot of things, you know, uh, some people have been making some comments saying that, well, the CDC, um, you know, there's a lot of things that work. There's a lot of treatments that work. There's a lot of medications that work. There's, a, you know, hand sanitizer works. But should the CDC be allowed to mandate that you, for example, get chemo when you have cancer or that you mm -hmm. sanitize your hands all the time, you know, everywhere you go? Can they mandate that, um, you know, you know, these types of mandates, like, are they... Can they force you into all of these things? Um, and that is like the big, I think, underlying question when it comes to this mandate. Biden is challenging this in court. I don't think that's going to be politically very popular if this, if the mandates are, are able to come back. I know that some people feel like, well, we've got to be able to allow the CDC the power. And so reversing this ruling would kind of hand that power back to the CDC, whether the administration actually decides to go forward with a mask mandate again or not. It's set to expire anyway. But if they were to, let's say, reverse this ruling and uh, they maybe would not extend the mask mandate, but would just have it, the ruling, so that in the future they could then, you know, in the fall, mm -hmm. let's say, go back to mandating masks. And we are seeing, by the way, universities, they are now starting to mandate masks again because of the spread of COVID. So it wouldn't surprise me if the masks come back in the fall. I know you hate to hear that. But if this ruling gets reversed in courts, if they do challenge it, I do think we will see some mandates coming back in the fall, especially for public transit. Oh, I just uh, I just enjoyed my first maskless flight uh, yesterday. It was wonderful. Uh, short flight from Michigan back to DC and uh, yeah it was great and basically Curious. no one was wearing masks that's what on, i was that's, yeah. what, that's what i'm wondering how many people chose to wear a mask cuz now it's personal choice right so, i would say it was it was definitely under half it, it maybe it was like 25% maybe 30% okay. maybe there's probably fewer 
when I, I, was, I was in uh, the Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, there was probably even fewer than that in that airport. But when I came, and I expected more in, in D.C. when I got back, but in the D.C. airport, I, I mean, I was, you know, I was only, I was just like exiting it, but I did not see a lot of mess, I didn't think. So that, that was my That's- first heartening because D.C., loves their mask. Even when they even yeah. when the CDC said you didn't have to wear them outdoors, like half of all people were still wearing them outdoors. So th- this is a That's, this is an encouraging yeah. sign. That's why I don't trust the polls when they say that the the majority of people still want mask mandates. I don't believe it. I live in super liberal LA where everybody was wearing masks outside. I got yelled at for not wearing a mask while walking my dog outside, not being around anybody. I mean, this is how, you know, and I live in like a really liberal part of LA. And even then here, 10% are wearing masks when they go inside places. It is not at all the majority. So if people are really wanting this, why aren't they wearing them then? So I just don't believe it. I just think it's the it's the small group of people they pull uh, wherever they get these polling people. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't think that they're popular. And I think it would be negative for the administration to bring them back. But yeah, oh, no, absolutely. Take the win. Let yeah. it go. Well, anyway, Seriously. we'll have All uh, right. more to talk about uh, Elon Musk coming up next. Yeah, your radar. Yep. Yes. All right, Robbie, let's hear it. What's on your radar? Well, there's a new sheriff in town, and his name is Elon Musk. The world's wealthiest man has offered to buy the social media site for $46.5 billion, and Twitter's board has accepted the offer just yesterday. So Musk has many reasons for buying Twitter, but his main drive appears to be to preserve, or in fact rediscover, the site's commitment to the principles of free speech. Now, Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated, is what Elon Musk has said about his decision to purchase Twitter. Now, admittedly, the town square analogy that he has used frequently to describe the situation is, I think, a little imperfect. So for one thing, Twitter is actually a private company rather than a genuinely public space, which means that it is not bound by the First Amendment. So unlike the actual town square, Twitter retains the right to punish users for perfectly legal speech. It's also the case that while Twitter is incredibly important for the political class, for journalists, for business leaders, and other social influencers, it's actually not nearly as big or as frequently visited as Facebook, YouTube, TikTok. As Tech Dirt's Mike Mastic has put it, really the entire internet is the town square, and Twitter is one small space of that. Now, Twitter's social importance is definitely inflated by members of the media and by political figures because the site is their preferred virtual place for hanging out and for sharing their views. So I think this is partly true of Musk himself. He clearly enjoys the platform a lot. He uses it to great effect. And thus, I think he's probably overstating its importance to society. But there are many, many other ways to communicate political messages. And if Twitter ceased to exist tomorrow, I'm doubtful it would meaningfully harm anyone's ability to speak. All that said, the people who are really overstating Twitter's importance are actually Musk critics in progressive and mainstream media. Because And boy, are they overstating it. So the British writer George Mon- tweeted that Elon Musk's free speech views are lethal. His vision for Twitter is not a promise, but a threat. The activist Sean King, who I think subsequently deleted his Twitter, probably in protest of Elon Musk, he said Elon Musk's decision to purchase Twitter is actually about white power. It's not about left versus right. It's about white power. The man was raised in apartheid by a white nationalist, and he's upset that Twitter won't allow white nationalists to target, harass people. That's his definition 
of free speech. Editor of the left-wing publication Current Affairs, Nathan Robinson, fretted that the only comforting reason to think Donald Trump might not win in 2024 was that his prior success was so dependent on his Twitter account. If Musk takes over, it's very likely that Trump will be back and therefore unstoppable. So Robinson apparently thinks that Trump's ability to win re-election hinges on whether he's on Twitter, not whether he has a successful message or whether he's resonating with voters. Never mind that in all likelihood, being off Twitter is probably good for Trump's electoral chances because when he's not able to tweet the crazy things, his opposition is actually less successful, motivating their base, terrifying them about the, the possibility of Trump. So this is the view that Twitter is the most important thing. That's all there is. And it's a very, it's completely at odds with the reality that Trump has no shortage of methods for talking to Americans and getting his message across right now. Unfortunately and frustratingly, liberals and progressives, especially in the media, have convinced themselves that censorship works. They have convinced themselves that the only way to effectively counter bad speech is to label it as misinformation or harassment and prevent it from being uttered. So forget about countering it or arguing against it, especially forget about just reporting it. The media thinks its job is not to communicate with readers, but to actually obstruct communication, to get in the way, to throw themselves in the path of any unwanted noise being directed at potential listeners or readers or viewers. That's what's really got them so scared about Elon Musk. He takes the old school liberal view that we shouldn't be afraid of unpleasant speech. In fact, he recently tweeted this. I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. Now, I think that's a praiseworthy and an important commitment and one that everyone, left and right, including the, the, all of Elon Musk fanboys, they should hold him accountable to that. As Liz Wolf, my colleague at Reason Magazine, wrote about Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, quote, optimism with some reservation about Musk's ability to execute seems warranted. Hysteria, like declaring that it's now open season for white supremacists, that Musk's vision for free speech will be lethal, or that Musk is an echo of imperialist colonizer forebears because he wants to go to Mars, that's not. And Kim, I wanted to read to you the ACLU statement on the matter. So Anthony Romero, the ACLU executive director, he had this reaction. While Elon Musk is an ACLU card-carrying member and one of our most significant supporters, that's a lot of there's a lot of danger having so much power in the hands of one individual, and in today's world, a small handful of private tech companies, including Twitter, play a profound and unique role in enabling our right to express ourselves online. Social media is a critical tool to use to share ideas, express opinions, and consume information that has real-life impacts in discourse in the offline world. We should be worried about any powerful central actor, whether it's a government or any wealthy individual, even if it's an ACLU member, having so much control over the boundaries of our political speech. So I don't, that wasn't like a, that's not a crazy statement, um, but right. you know, what Elon Musk is saying is that he is worried that the current iteration of Twitter, there's too much central control over who gets to say what. And he's coming in with this somewhat different vision, or he's going to try to do things differently. We don't know if he'll succeed. So I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure what, you know, where their concern is coming. Obviously, if he starts going, you know, doing, banning all criticism of Tesla or something, then yes, sure, that would be a betrayal of what he's saying, and that would deserve criticism from me, from the ACLU, from anyone. But, like, he's not, <laughs> right now he is just saying, I'm trying to open it up, like, the way it's been is, is bad. And he's getting, again, it's being treated like this is just trying to unleash harassment or something on people. Yeah, the meltdown is astonishing to watch. And even just their reasoning for it. I mean, one woman, for example, on Twitter, I think she kind of summed it up. And she was saying that 
oh, this is the worst thing to happen to democracy and freedom and free, uh, freedom of speech because uh, now they're going to reinstate Trump. They're they're going to have nonstop lies and propaganda, and they're not going to they're not going to censor misinformation. That is what this sort of sentiment is for this absolute meltdown. Just saying, I cannot believe they're no longer going to be censoring these people. How dare they? You know, Elon Musk is going to be the worst thing to happen. I I have a lot of optimism with for Elon Musk uh, taking over Twitter. I I think that if he does start censoring in a way that is just beneficial to him, everyone is going to call him out. I don't think he has worshipers. Mm -hmm. I think that this whole notion that Elon Musk is somehow, you know, deitized by a certain group of people, I I don't I don't agree with that at all. I just think a lot of people respect him and like him and hope that the best, you know, that he's going to do the best for us. But um, I think the minute he crosses the line and does something against what he's claiming he's going to do, everyone is going to be dragging him for it more so than what they're than the people that are dragging him now. But you know, and the, he also seems aware of that too. He's he's totally. said that right. He's like everybody's going to blame me if things goes goes wrong. So that and that itself can serve as a check against doing things like that. Well, and right now Twitter is very opaque. We don't know mm-hmm. who's actually running the show. We don't know what the algorithm is or what makes, you know, who gets banned and why and what the rules are. And that's something that Elon says he's going to open up, that he's going to make that more transparent. So yeah, right now we don't know who to blame. We just say, "Oh, Silicon Valley liberals." We don't know who, right? right. We don't have the I mean, we say Jack or, you know, we blame we we sort of blame the CEO, but then they say, "Well, the algorithm or the the people that are working in the actual, you know, uh, company of Twitter." But Elon, people will just pin it on him directly because it's his company, privately owned. And that, I think, is going to be, I I mean, I'm excited for this. I think it's going to be much better for discourse. There is this really toxic mentality coming from the left these days. It used to come from the right, and there's some of it still with the real conservative Bible Belt. But on the left, there is this growing consensus to censor. And it is so dangerous. They just anything they don't like, any opinion they don't like, they label conspiracy theory, misinformation, and they want to silence it. They just think it's dangerous. The fact that some of these tweets are, oh, no, like Nathan Robinson saying, oh, no, Trump is going to come back and then he might win because people might hear his message and like it. That is the that is against democracy to say, I don't want people to hear that because they might like it and vote for it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is right. What does that say about your side? That you can't win, not not you, but for the right, Nathan yeah, Robinsons of the world. Yes. What does that say about their side that you can only win if, if the person they're afraid of is, is, is shut out of, of a social media platform? That's it. like that's different even than saying, well, he has to be shut out of it because you know his 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 words inspire violence among his supporters, which I, you know I think that gets obviously is taken too far too. But right. but that he's he's going to win if he's allowed to talk. Like what he has a hypnotic power. I. I, don't, I also think that's giving, again, as I sort of laid out in my radar, I think that's giving way too much credit to Twitter or putting too much power on Twitter. I, like, there are some people who use Twitter so much and so pathologically that I think they come to view Twitter as like the most important thing or the most important place for talking. got to remember, it's a small social media site compared right. to even a lot of the others. Uh, it, it's important because a lot of important people spend a lot of time there talking with each right. other. So I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not representative. It's not widespread. It's not really. It's not even really the, like the common man's social media site. So let's not get a, like too wrapped up in its power right. or its importance, which is right. a, well, like it's important to me. Yeah. I enjoy the site a lot. I wanted to have different rules, but let's not pretend it's you know the the most important 
site that's ever existed, which is clearly Well, it's not. very important for politics because right. the politicians are on it and they are giving their messages directly to the people through Twitter, which I think makes it extremely important and more like a town square. But to your point, I understand it is not actually a town square if it's privately owned. But basically, Elon Musk is saying, I'm going to buy a town square right. and offer it to the people. So, you know, but I do have one question. I am curious and I, I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this. Did people have an absolute meltdown, the same sort of meltdown when Jeff Bezos bought Washington Post? Do you remember? Was there like an exodus of Washington Post writers? I, what I re remember, that's a great question. What I remember is nothing like this. I don't remember a ton of freaking out about it, like at all. In fact, the, the first time I started hearing a lot of criticism of it. I feel like I was hearing it from like, from Tucker Carlson or people like him, yeah. actually. Uh, I, I, I don't remember hearing a lot of freak out from progressives at all about it. And, and, and I think then, then the conservative movement at that time was not as you know concerned about, I don't know, big business oh, or big tech at the time. Yeah. So, so no, I that's mean, a great look, point. <laughs> there, there's definitely a problem with billionaires owning all of our media. I mean, you've got, you know, Jeff Bezos owning Washington Post, Elon Musk for Twitter. And, you know, you've got the Google guys. There's definitely a problem with billionaires running the world. The, the thing is, though, and a lot of people on the left are blaming Elon Musk for that, like as if he could single handedly change right. it. He's not a politician. He is not somebody who's going to go and change the capitalist system that we live under. He's just working within the framework of it. So, right. you know, w because we are in this framework, it work, it's better to have, I guess, benevolent right. billionaires than, my, than not. But, you know, I my, get it. My advice to him, if he's listening to this, I think you should just devolve as much uh, moderation abilities on individual users. So like if there are, if users should be able to check a setting, like if you don't want to see what counts as misinformation misinformation and harassment and like all the bad stuff, there should just be a setting for you where you don't see any yeah, of that then, kind of content. And then other people, if they want to see all of that, then they check a different setting. That's what I think they should do. Well, but then you still have to label somebody misinformation so that you can, when you check that, you don't see it, right? So the, the platform would still have to go around being like, well, you're because it could still be user-based. <laughs> it could see, it, see, I, um, you know, I trust whatever, let's say from a liberal perspective, I trust Nathan Robinson. So whatever Nathan Robinson's, you know, Twitter settings are, that's the way my Twitter feed should look. It could be totally user-curated and user-based, like it could learn based on what people of this political persuasion enjoy seeing. It yeah. just doesn't need to be that way for every person on Twitter. That's my well, idea. Well, I'm sure anyway. he's I'm sure he's going to make a lot of changes. He does still need to make money with the thing. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of changes made to the platform. Plus, still, you know, needing to bring in money. I, I think the one thing he could definitely work on is Twitter blue. It sucks. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't even understand it. Why yeah, are we I paying two bucks a month for it? It's terrible. Some changes need to be made. Maybe it'd be worth it. You know, once Elon takes hold of it and does something with it. I don't know. That's uh, <laughs> we'll also see. good advice. Well, Kim, I hear the Daily Beast had a scandalous scoop about yes. a revolt at the hill uh i look yes. forward to hearing your take on this next well i had a hit piece written about me yesterday at the daily beast uh, that we're going to talk about here uh yesterday i ended up getting this email from a writer at the daily beast asking me for comment um saying you know and i thought i thought actually they were asking when they contacted me to talk about the piece, the radar that I did on Gonzalo Lira, where I mentioned the Daily Beast extensively in it, saying that they had written a hit piece about him and that they, you know, potentially were putting him in, in danger. I thought that's what they were contacting me about. But no, they were like, hey, we've got a hit piece about you and we want to comment 
from you about this. Uh, let me just show you. So they did publish it yesterday. Let me just show you the actual Twitter thread. The piece is out there if you do want to go and look for it and read it. Uh, but I, I encourage you not to because if you do click on it, then they're going to think, oh, this is popular. <laughs> and then they're going <laughs> to they're going to want to write more pieces like this. But this is the Twitter thread that they published yesterday in conjunction with the piece saying exclusive trouble at the hill. Staffers at the D.C. outlet have complained to management about Kim Iverson, one of the hosts of The Hill's popular web show Rising, over her fringe views and misinformation media newsletter Confider has learned. By the way, I couldn't even get an actual uh, piece in the Daily Beast. They only put me in the newsletter. Maybe next time. <laughs> Maybe next time my profile will raise up and they'll uh, give me an actual piece in the in the actual publication. It says Kim is a conspiracy theorist said one staffer. I think she's really bad news. Iverson brands herself as a tell-it-like-it-is-no-BS broadcaster and spoke at this month's anti-vax defeat-the-mandates rally in L.A. She was also briefly suspended by YouTube last month for COVID misinformation. Iverson has further sparked uproar among the um, among her The Hill colleagues for parroting Kremlin talking points about Ukrainian neo-Nazis and seemingly defending the Chinese government's brutal treatment of Uyghurs, for which co-host Ryan Grimm confronted her on air. According to sources at The Hill, who described her rhetoric as toxic and dangerous, staffers have expressed serious concerns about Iverson to management. The complaints have gone above editor-in-chief Bob Cusack, one high-level staffer said. In a statement to confider Kim Iverson said her co-workers' feelings aren't a secret to her. Everyone has witnessed the disdain on air. And yes, I'm aware of the whining to management. This isn't news. So um, this piece came out yesterday. Uh, I, when I read what they were writing, I thought this is not, I mean, I, as you see me respond, this is not news. Everyone has seen on air uh, the disagreements. Sometimes right. they get very heated even. And that is for everybody to witness. This is not news that there are some people that do not agree with my opinions and sometimes very passionately they don't agree with my right. opinions so i just felt like this is like a funny thing to eat for one is this news right it's, not really well, it's news, news it's news to the daily beast it's news to the mainstream media because they don't do this any what our show does which is bring like you and i disagree on plenty of things on some of those subjects ryan and, and you disagree even more strongly and brianna like we have a we have a range of views on these important subjects and we actually discuss them and debate them and sometimes it gets heated i don't think it gets heated very often but it, of course it does sometimes and that, right. like, that's what our show is about, is having actual debates and disagreement. And no one else in the media does that anymore. They used to do that. You used to bring on, the host would bring on people they disagreed with. They would have panel segments where there's debate. But now everyone, CNN, MSNBC, Fox too, there's no actual disagreement. You're brought on to agree with the host, and that's it. So what our show does, it didn't used to be this way, but is now, I, I think, totally unique in all the media. So it is news to the Daily Beast that, oh my God, can you believe that? <laughs> They're going off script. They're actually having like like uncomfortable moments where people are, are right. upset with each other and disagreeing and quarreling. But like that's what the viewer the viewers don't just want to be told things they already know by people who's like you could you could write their talking points for them because you already know what they're gonna say. So right. anyway, that's why I think they think it's news, even though it's not news to us and it's not news to our viewers.
Yeah, this wasn't news at all. It's definitely not news to the viewers. Everybody has seen, you know, the the disagreements on air. This is not news at all. One thing, though, I want to mention. So they kind of when they when they wrote this piece, they mentioned that I was uh, that I had been depla- that I had been um, blocked on YouTube and then suspended on YouTube and that the Hill had been also suspended at one point, almost like pinning it on me. For one, my suspension from YouTube for the covid misinformation, quote unquote, was reversed not even with me appealing it. YouTube reversed it on their own volition and issued me an apology. So of course they don't write that in the piece. Secondly, I had nothing to do with when the Hill was suspended. That was you and and, and Ryan and Emily Jashinsky when you guys were talking. I wasn't even in that segment at all, but they still kind of made it sound like, uh, oh, you know, people at the Hill are worried that Kim's going to get the platform in trouble. I think we all of course, worry about that. That's also not a secret. We always are mentioning and joking about, oh, no, you know, the the YouTube censors coming after us. But look, you know, every organization has, you know, we've seen this in the news. We see it at Netflix. We see it at Spotify. We're seeing it now at Twitter. There's always that person or small group of people. uh, Sometimes it's a larger group, depending on the organization, that just has a certain viewpoint where they don't expect they don't accept other certain viewpoints and they want to revolt. They want to complain to management. They want to uh, say, we're walking out if this person is allowed on the platform. You know, we saw this with Spotify and Joe Rogan. There is, of course, that mentality of, I don't like that particular viewpoint. I'm only going to allow viewpoints that I disagree with that are in a certain realm. And anybody outside of that, they should just be silenced. They're misinformation, they're conspiracy theorists. We all know those exist, those types of mentalities exist. And yeah, maybe some of those mentalities even exist at the Hill. But, you know, and people, and I, and I, I hey, it, I think anybody should be allowed to express their opinion. And if they feel that way, they should express it. If they wanna talk to management about it, absolutely fine. You know, like right. I'm not here to censor anybody. Um, but what what a company then ultimately ends up doing in the Hill is about having multiple viewpoints, having right. different perspectives, as long as they are based in fact and fact checked. And everything I talk about is fact checked and based in fact, you might not like my conclusion or my opinions. That's how you know, that's the premise of this show. Right. Um, so, you know, it, but this is not news to me when they wrote this to me. This is not news. I do know of certain, you know, maybe complaints here or there. You know, I, I you know, we and, but the vast majority of everything everybody has seen publicly. There's no revolt, I think, going on. Are you revolting? Was this you, Robbie? Were you the one that did? You were the one that did. <laughs> I knew I was going to get blamed. Were you for this the leak? Were you because the mole? I, I absolutely am not. But I did used to write. I mean, it's years ago now. It shows how much like things have changed or you know, various publications go through changes. I used to write a daily, uh, not a daily, a weekly column for the Daily Beast like five or six years ago or something. I used to, I used to have a lot of friends there, but I don't anymore. I, I wouldn't, it was oh, absolutely sure, not me. When sure. I have complaints about what you say, Kim, <laughs> I just complain about them on TV with you. Same way you have complaints about you know, what I say sometimes. So it, it's just... It's just the idea know. that Look, I don't know like, that anyone, you know, the kind of tattling type stuff, you know, this is typical like media gossip, rumory nonsense that I agree with you isn't news. But no, I, yeah. I, I didn't do it. I know on Twitter people were accusing me of being a narc because I, I seem like I would be. 
Uh, <laughs> I was joking with you. Was when not I said me. That to you. Was not me. I I don't think it was you. But you know, look, like I mean, clearly they must have got you know whatever. They're they're writing this piece. They're talking to somebody, whatever. So I mean, this is more of an implication of you know this is kind of right. it's not just me. They're implicating. They're implicating everybody. So now everybody, all of you at the Hill are now all suspects to me. Uh, Everybody's a suspect. Who's this is gonna be like a little ball? clue game. Uh. <laughs> was it clue. Robbie? Who's the one? Was it Robbie? Who was the one that leaked this information to the Daily? Oh. I mean, all they had to do was honestly watch our YouTube channel, watch, you know, watch right. all of our segments. And then they they put this together. And, you know, I mean, it's just but it's you can watch a single you could watch a single episode of our show. And like, like it's just it's not a secret that people disagree. Like, that is the premise <laughs> of our show. We do it on the show. It's we're film right. doing it every day. So it just shows how clueless they are. And like they, they they are allowed to be clueless about what we do. They don't have to pay attention to us. But. What they're missing is that this used to be like what television news, what, what, what we're doing right. was the project of television news. And then they all got, you know, lazy or scared of alternate opinions or just, you know, very set in their I'm right and I don't want to hear anyone who challenges me kind of mindset, which is, is just it's not what we're about. Yeah, it's, so it's not healthy I'm, at all. It's, it's not, not healthy, healthy at all. all. And they, they have that perspective and people that hold that perspective, like those that are, you know, CNN is very much, I think, kind of an, an embodiment of this in a lot of ways. Maybe they'll yeah. change. Hopefully they do. But that's why CNN Plus didn't work. You know, this type of viewpoint, this silence and censor and only have certain viewpoints on that, you know, the, the safe uh, opposing opinions that they deem to be OK. That's not popular, as we've seen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they need to, I think, yeah. uh, re-gear themselves a little bit. On, but it's not even, it's, it's, it's like, when was the last time you watched a Fox segment and they had someone on who disagreed with, you know, who was going to argue against the perspective of the host? They used to do that. And I just, they never do it anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're, we're definitely missing that. And here, that is what we do. So this is totally not, I, I actually laughed when the, I read what he was asking me and what what he was make, what he, the claims he was making i was like i mean this isn't news i don't understand mm. like you're not it's not like people are telling me you know everybody's saying oh kim we all agree with you everybody agrees with you here everybody's just oh you know and then behind my back right. everybody's you know oh i can't believe her no we guys all call, it's we happening. all call you uh, hydroxychloroquine behind your behind your back <laughs> to my face actually <laughs> yes it's, i learned that from face. you you told me that and i thought <laughs> no, it was I'm hilarious i'm the one that taught you that <laughs> <laughs> all right well anyway Funny, funny. I wish, though, next time, the one request I have of the Daily Beast is please put me actually as a feature in your publication. Don't put me in a newsletter that you just throw, you know, I mean, come on, that people delete out of their inbox. Yeah. (laughs) It's an honor to finally be smeared by the Daily Beast. I've joined the ranks of many others, so. (laughs) Indeed. All right. Well, we have more rising coming up next. 58 percent of voters say they are open to supporting an independent candidate in a contest between former President Trump and President Biden, according to new Harvard Caps Harris polling. A majority of respondents said they do not want Biden or Trump to run in 2024. However, in a hypothetical rematch election between two, uh, Trump slightly edges out Biden with 45 percent of the vote to Biden's 43 And in the Democratic camp, alarm bells are already ringing as President Biden's approval continues to stall around the low 40s. Former Clinton aide and pollster Mark Penn issued a frantic warning for Team Blue in the New York Times this Sunday, writing in an op-ed, quote, 
People are afraid of being walloped financially, being injured or menaced by criminals, being in a country without strong borders or COVID protections for immigrants, and being under threat of nuclear weapons. If Mr. Biden and Democratic leaders cannot effectively address these fears, the wave election will hit them in November. A rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Chris Jackson is senior vice president at Ipsos, and Rachel Bovard is policy director for the Conservative Partnership Institute. Welcome to you both. Greetings. Good morning. So, Chris, I mean, we keep having uh, segments about this where we basically just say, yeah, this is looks really, really bad for Democrats. And, and there's always like, yeah, well, there's some time to turn it around. But that time, it keeps, keeps decreasing. Every time we talk about this, it's another week closer uh, to the midterms and then closer to uh, 2024. You know, what, what do Democrats, what can they do at this point is there anything they can do to, to avoid the, the wipeout that is probably coming this year? Well, it's important to keep a long-term perspective. And the truth is, in a midterm election, the president's party tends to get walloped. That's just sort of the gravity of the American political system. But the Democrats this year really are facing some strong headwinds, and a lot of it's sort of outside of their power. Things like inflation, things like the lingering pandemic, uh, the conflict in Ukraine that's sort of scaring a lot of Americans. A lot of these things, Democrats have a limited ability to affect. So it's really, I think, an open question on if they're going to be able to turn their fortunes around by November. Rachel, I'm curious from your perspective. I mean, there's a lot going on here, right? We've got an economy uh, with uh, extremely high inflation. We've got uh, weapons being sent over to Ukraine, a lot of money being uh, being allocated there. There is a threat of a nuclear war coming from not only just Russia, but also now North Korea. What do you think is the one thing, if you had to pick, that is hurting the Democrats the most? Well, I think all the things, you know, that you just mentioned, it really do threaten Americans, these broad forces they feel are outside of their control. But I think the mistake Democrats are making is not even focusing on the things that they can control. And in fact, I think exacerbating the irritation and annoyance that a lot of Americans feel about, again, things Democrats can control. I think uh, just a microcosm of this question is the most politically tone deaf thing I've seen Democrats do in a while, which is to challenge and appeal uh, the recent ruling on dropping the airline mask mandate, while at the same time lifting pandemic restrictions at the border. You know, this is, again, a small microcosm of, I think, larger forces at work, but it's one of the most politically stupid things I've ever seen. You know, I fly all the time. I was on a plane earlier this week. I'll be on a plane tomorrow. No one's wearing masks. I think trying to force people back into that just reminds them, um, you know, that this administration is more interested in nannying, you know, what they do day to day than addressing, again, these very broad uh, forces that, that people feel are affecting them that they have no control over. So I think, you know, every party in power loses seats in the midterms. Democrats are on track right now to make it worse for themselves, not better. You know, Chris, I was interested uh, about the polling indicating interest in an uh, independent or a third party candidate. I'm an independent voter. I think Kim has supported independent candidates in the past. Uh, so I get excited when I hear things like that. But then, of course, the, the, the two party system really always ends up grinding that down to just a few percentage points as people you know, eventually break. Uh, for, for one or the other. And any reason, is there any reason to think it would somehow, for some reason, be different um, uh, next time? 
So uh, first, let me respond quickly to something Rachel just said. Uh, masks on planes are actually still somewhat popular. We have polling. The Associated Press has polling showing a majority of Americans, including a majority of flyers, support those. I don't think that the Biden administration chasing masks is the big failure. It's really the fact that there's still large amounts of inflation in the economy. People are feeling the price pressure every time they go to the pump. They see prices going up. That's the thing that's hurting Democrats more than anything. Uh, but turning to the third party question, uh, I think this is the reality of the fact that all major politicians right now in America are unpopular. Biden's underwater. Trump remains underwater. In a situation like that, of course, you're going to see a large number of Americans wanting somebody better. The problem is there's the ideal of somebody better and the reality of whoever it is you end up picking. And the reality never seems to quite measure up. So you never quite get that third party candidate who really breaks through because they have to work in the real world. You want to respond to that, Rachel? Well, you know, I think going back to the mask issue, I don't think it's the thing that's going to take Democrats down. I think it's representative of the fact that this is where they're wasting their time when, in fact, there are much bigger issues they need to be focusing on. But in terms of independent candidates, you know, I tend to agree a little bit with Robbie with your assessment in the sense that, you know, I think in theory, people love the idea of an independent candidate. But when it comes down to brass tacks, when it actually comes down to pulling the lever in the voting booth, you know, they are they voters tend to sort of retrench. Um, and I think it also really depends on who the independent candidate is. I don't think that there has been right. necessarily a compelling person put forward uh, in this regard. I don't think sort of the Romney Cheney, you know, post-party approach to politics is going to resonate nationally. Um, and I think those two at this point are the most viable options that we have on the right anyway for someone to run uh, independent. So I do think we're kind of stuck uh, <laughs> with what we got, uh, even though I think, you know, the negatives for both are pretty high. Right. Well, and, and I think it matters. I mean, it matters who the candidates are. So to some extent, we know, I think we know with relative certainty, I, I absolutely think that Biden will be the the Democratic nominee that he will run for re-election. There, there's certainly question, right? There's a greater question for what the Republican situation will be because we don't know for certain uh, whether whether Trump is going to go for it. And you know, there it may be the case that there are voters who would be interested in an independent candidate if there if there are only other non-Biden choices, Trump, but not if it's like virtually any other Republican. Or I guess theoretically it could be the other way around too. There could be voters who are only voting for Trump, no matter you know who. If it's some other re Republican, then they're interested in an independent candidate. I don't know. But uh, with Democrats' electoral future more uncertain than ever, the Biden administration is quietly preparing for an onslaught of GOP-led congressional investigations next year should Republicans regain control of Congress. According to the Washington Post, the White House has already begun staffing up in anticipation of going on uh, the defense. So, uh, Chris, does that... Does that uh, I, I guess, could, could that, you know, shock the... the party in charge currently into into, I don't know, trying harder or if it's a matter of like life and death of, of survival of, of, you know, facing inquiries, that kind of thing, um, if, if they lose power. Well, this uh, presidential elections and midterm elections have very little connected together. The Democrats could lose a ton of seats this year and still potentially mount a pretty strong campaign in 2024. And I think one of the things Democrats are really struggling with this year is the fact that they control 
uh, Congress and the White House, and Democratic voters are feeling like there's not a lot to get enthused about. Democratic enthusiasm is much lower than Republican enthusiasm is right now. Um, but one thing that American politics has shown over the last couple of decades is fear and anger are powerful motivators. So if you see Republican committees filing all sorts of hearings and having all sorts of very inflammatory sort of show trials, uh, that'll give Democrats something to get enthused about and potentially turn their fortunes around for 2024. Rachel, do you think it's going to be politically popular for Republicans to go after Democrats in this kind of onslaught of investigations if they take over, probably when they take over uh, Congress in the fall? You know, I think it really depends, honestly, on the breakdown of the Congress. You know, if you have you know, a full Republican House or Republican Senate, but Biden in the White House, I think the expectations change a little bit versus a Republican House, a Democratic Senate. The expectations change there, too. If, you, if you're not going to be able to accomplish your legislative agenda, then your oversight agenda is where you really have to double down. And I do think there's some element of the Republican base that does, you know, want these things investigated. They feel, you know, as though they've been treated unfairly, that Biden has been given an advantage, that no one's looked into very, you know, flamingly obvious questions about, you know, what his son was doing uh, in Ukraine and elsewhere. And I think they do want answers in that regard. And one thing I do think that may come back to bite Democrats is the astounding precedent they've established for uh, the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, we have never seen a committee as uh, willing to throw precedent overboard as we have with this committee. They've laid down some tremendous markers about what a committee can demand uh, in terms of documents, records, even on their own colleagues. I don't know if Republicans will embrace that, but some form of Rubicon has been crossed uh, in terms of what uh, what can be done by congressional committee. I don't know if Republicans will pick that up, uh, but it is available to them. Mm -hmm. well, All right, well. As President Biden falters in the polls, Senator Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are attracting attention around Washington for what some party members say appear to be, quote, early national campaigns in waiting. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that, Kim? I, I, I don't think uh, they're actually going to fight with Biden for, I mean, they're they, not, they're not yeah. going to fight with Biden. So, I mean, if Biden wants the nomination, Biden gets it. It's the right. same thing for the Republican side. I think if Trump wants it, Trump gets it. You know, you I don't know so? if any, I mean, yeah, I think people will try to fight him. I think you're going to get those never Trump or Republicans who are going to try well, to go after him, but I don't think it's going to be very successful. I don't think a Ron DeSantis is going to go after Trump. I don't, what do you think, Rachel? I think that's right. You know, we've discussed this a couple of times on the show. I think for, you know, the, the reality remains Trump still is the most popular Republican in the party. People are not going to challenge him. I mean, you, you, you may see a few, you know, stray uh, people that, that try to go after him. I think it'll be unsuccessful. I think, Kim, you're right. If he wants the nomination, he's going to get it. What do you think about that, Chris? Is it Trump's if Trump wants it, it's his end of story? I think Trump certainly has the advantage in a Republican nominee uh, nomination. Uh, as Rachel said, he is still the most popular figure in the party. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk, though. We have seen his sort of stature decline a little bit since he's left office. But mm -hmm. I don't think that any of the other Republicans are going to want to damage their own brands. Any of the other Republicans that have a good chance, I should say, uh, are going to want to damage their own brands by going against Trump, who has proven to be a masterful political communicator uh, and very adept at destroying his enemies. What about uh, on the Democratic side? Do you think that uh, Warren or Bernie can, uh, you know, challenge Biden or what? I mean, what if Biden decides not to run? Do you think either of them have a shot at the nomination? All the energy in the Democratic Party is certainly on the left. That's where sort of the, the enthusiasm, the passion is. So I think if Biden decides not to run, 
uh, Sanders or Warren or some other sort of uh, liberal stalwart has a pretty good shot. Uh, I don't really see them challenging Biden if he does announce. It's not really how Democrats have traditionally done things, at least not since 1980. Um, but uh, I do think that uh, that is where a lot of the passion lives, is in that Sanders Warren side of the party. Well, Rachel Bovard, Chris Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Great Thanks, to be with guys. You. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Well, now that Elon Musk owns Twitter, some people are worried that this deal, well, it could open up the floodgates to Chinese influence over what we're calling the proverbial town square. Fellow billionaire Jeff Bezos has some questions about how China will fit in, too, when the Twitter deal is sealed. Here to discuss is policy director for the Conservative Partnership Institute, Rachel Bovard. Rachel, welcome to the show. So is Elon, uh, is Jeff Bezos just being a bit bitter and maybe jealous, or is there some actual genuine concern with Elon Musk and China and Twitter? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not going to take any criticism from Jeff Bezos on Chinese entanglement seriously. Like, are you kidding me? This yeah. is the guy who, you know, bans books at will, but happily went into a propaganda effort with uh, the Chinese president, banned any comments about his book of speeches. Uh, routinely, you know, his platform is littered uh, with Chinese goods. I mean, this is a man right. who's, his platform is entirely entangled with China. Now, that being said, it right, is but a but that's my concern, Rachel. For... He's speaking from experience. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He knows, he knows what Elon's about to get into. But, you know, that being said, the question is valid, I think, for Elon Musk. We know he is also uh, pretty entangled uh, in China through his other business ventures, specifically Tesla. So I think it is a completely valid line of questioning. Will that impact, you know, Twitter as a speech platform? We know China uses Twitter. We China has plenty of bots. Its state actors are on Twitter constantly. So what's the playbook going to be? Are, are there going to be walls put in place, you know, that sort of guide how, how Musk acts in this regard? Or is he going to be influenced by what China could do in retribution to Tesla uh, where he also seeks to make a profit. Yeah, look, it has to be a fair question because the model for, you know, mo for many CEOs, major businesses, it, when they get pushed by China, when China says, hey, you have to do this, they generally, like, universally have folded, have given censors in the authoritarian Communist Party of China exactly what they want. Now, look, I respect Elon Musk greatly. I, I like the vision that he has articulated for Twitter. I am interested to see him try to implement it. And, and maybe he is more ideologically committed to resisting that kind of thing. I, I certainly think it's a good thing he said that and he should be held you know, accountable. He should be like made to keep that promise by his supporters and his fans, etc. But it, it has to be Given how easily everyone else has folded, it has to be at least something discussed. The the possible concern that China could end up influencing, you know, because of his you know need to have uh, access to their markets, could influence things because that's been the norm. That's what has happened in every other case. 
Yeah, this is a problem, you know, that's not unique to Twitter. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be right, talking not at about all. it. We absolutely should be. But every major tech platform, you know, from Google on down to Amazon to Facebook has a Chinese problem. Like they all want access to the market. You know, Apple infamously, you know, signed this five-year memorandum of understanding with China to help them develop like superior technology, right, to get into the market. Right. So this is across you know, our major tech platforms. This is not just unique to Twitter, but that said, you know, Musk has staked out a position where he said, you know, I'm for free speech. You know, I don't even care about the economics of Twitter. I want to make it more, you know, more of a home uh, to free discourse. Well, if that's the case, then you you actually do have to, I think, put down clear parameters about how you're going to handle China's influence. And, you know, we know foreign influence on Twitter is, is a thing. You know, I think we all learned during this uh, Elon Musk drama that the Saudi government had a pretty big stake in Twitter uh, as well. And that's sort of disconcerting <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in addition. So this is something I think we actually need to have a public conversation about. And if Elon Musk taking over Twitter as the proxy for that conversation, you know, then so be it. Although Elon Musk is in an interesting position, he's in a very unique position when it comes to China, because his Tesla factory is actually the only 100 percent American owned factory inside the country of China. Everyone else has to do this sort of contract where China owns you know, half of the company or half of the manufacturing and and the other automaker uh, like BMW, for example, they have to partner with the Chinese company and then they manufacture it and whatnot. And so Tesla has a, a, an incredibly unique deal with China that is unlike any other company inside of China, any other foreign company inside of China. So one, you know, one of the reasons why so many of the other companies seem to cater so much to China, you know, I've seen this with like Facebook, I see it with Google, see with Amazon, right? I see with all these companies, they're trying to get into that China market. They're trying to break through. So they are willing to make some concessions. They weren't for a long time, though. If you remember, Google and Facebook were saying, we don't censor, we're American companies. And this is when China then started cutting them out. This was like in uh, 20, yeah, like maybe late 2010, you know, to early, you know, 12, 13. And they were cutting them out because China said, if you're going to be in our market, you have to censor. And then these American companies said, well, we don't do that because we're American. And then slowly over the last decade, you've seen them start to shift that mentality and start to say, well, okay, we're willing to maybe censor a little bit more. And one of my big suspicions is the reason why they've been willing to censor so much, not because uh, only because of American politicians pressuring them and American public pressuring them, but also their desire financially to get into the China market and to show them, hey, yeah, we're willing to do some censoring now. But Tesla's in a completely unique situation there. So if anything, Elon Musk is in a more powerful position to take on China because they don't own his factory at all. I mean, do you think that that's um, potentially some protection? I mean, yes and no. I mean, let's not forget, you know, these companies planted the American flag until Google was busted by its own employees building a censored search engine for China. So I think overall, you know, profits do trump ideology in a lot of these cases. And I think at the end of the day, that's the question for Tesla as well, that, you know, Musk may own outright his companies uh, in China, but he said a lot of favorable things about the Chinese regime. You know, he does want to make money uh, in China with Tesla. And so China, you know, unlike, you know, any other regulatory hurdle here in the United States, China could, you know, is an authoritarian regime. It could very easily punish a business that's operating within its borders. It already has ridiculous laws about, you know, what companies operating in China are forced to turn over to the government. So they have levers available to them, I think, you know, that are outside, obviously, of what we have here in a free and democratic United States. So this is a question I think he has to answer, you know, because again, it's not just that he makes money over overseas, 
in China, he has said very favorable things. And he could put these concerns to rest. I think this is the issue. You know, there's so many unknowns, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we that so many things we don't know about what a Musk regime at Twitter will look like. He can begin to answer those questions. And I think this has to be one among them. How are you going to separate your obvious business interests in Beijing with how you operate a, a, a free speech platform that he himself has said, you know, plays an outsized role in free discourse in the United States. Because in my mind, at least watching the other tech giants, they haven't been able to do it. So how is he going to do it differently? Right. I I think the the one big thing is that the reason why China was willing to give Elon such a special deal is because they need him more than he needs them. And that is a very unique position to be in, in uh, going up against Beijing. But Robbie, sorry, I cut you off. No, I was just going to say, you know, we're talking about fears of Chinese influence on social media sites. Yeah, I said this in my radar. Twitter is a smaller social media site than many, certainly a smaller social media site than TikTok, which is now this utterly dominating <laughs> site that, that actually is much more China, in direct, right. <laughs> obvious <laughs> ways Chinese uh, influenced. Like that is the concern, right? And I, and I tend to take on a lot of these you know, tech questions, I, I tend to take a less pessimistic uh, position than, than many on the right and the, and the left. Uh, but I am I have a lot of concern about TikTok. It is so beyond our well beyond our control, even compared to, to Google or 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 Facebook or Twitter. And it is the most popular one of all among the next generation. It's now the most it's more a more visited website uh, th- than Google is. So, there, you know, in between all this kind of you know, mutual pointing fingers between Bezos and Elon Musk. And well, wait a minute. What about TikTok? Right. Yeah. What about the actual Chinese PSYOP that we have running as a very popular like social media platform? No, I think this is like the conversation that, uh, you know, at least some of us on the right have been trying to have in the sense of, you know, Chinese influence over all these platforms. And if Musk is the thing that kicks it off, okay, fine. But yes, you're absolutely right. This isn't just a Twitter problem. We have to be talking about this across the platforms. And, you know, the Trump administration, I think, tried or at least identified the issue with TikTok, but didn't successfully deal with it. How are we going to deal with this going forward? Because at the end of the day, the the influence of China on the United States is not necessarily state actor versus state actor. It's China using our market forces. It's China using our private enterprise to, you know, influence political discourse, to kind of change our markets, to go after, you know, whatever their end game is. That's something that we as public, you know, in public policy have not dealt with. Um, we just haven't we don't have a plan for that. So this is something I think needs to kick off a more national conversation about how we deal with that, you know, from TikTok to Huawei on down. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just something that you know we, are, we haven't been prepared to handle. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I'm definitely also very alarmed with, you know, their ability. It's just because they've taken advantage of our hyper capitalist free market system and they're able to come in and buy up whatever they want because we have a nation for sale and we even have politicians for sale. They operate very differently. We're mad that we can't go and do the same thing to them. And they say, well, our rules are different, but we're just playing by your rules. And that is something I think we do have to discuss is maybe we need to change some of our rules a little bit, make it a little bit tougher. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look, it's something we, we just haven't, um, you know, Trump kicked off the conversation. There hasn't right. been a, a, a sort of policy response to it. I think it's time for that to happen. Absolutely. I agree with you. Well, right, Rachel, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. And we'll have more rising after this. Well, Donald Trump says he will not join 
rejoin Twitter, I should say, uh, even if Elon Musk changes the policies and the president can come back on. He says he's committed to his new social media endeavors um, and uh, he's not coming back to Twitter. I don't know. What do you think about that, Kim? Uh, I could easily see Trump coming back anyway. It's like it's not like he's committed to that promise. And I kind of think he probably would. But because hasn't he complained constantly that like he just loves Twitter and wants to be back on Twitter. That my understanding is that he really wants to be back on Twitter. I would imagine he wants to be back on Twitter because it definitely puts him in the public spotlight more. I mean, I don't even know what the guy is up to anymore. You know, I, I yeah. knew what he, what he was up to because he was constantly on Twitter and then that was being reported on. And since he's been banned from all of these di- different uh, sites and, you know, I, I don't even know where to get his messages. I guess if I were to sign up for his newsletter or something, maybe I would start getting well, more information about where the guy is. Though. Well, do, 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 because they're emailed to you or where? Well, they're usually posted on Twitter immediately. I mean, that's the funny. Like, Trump doesn't have the ability to tweet himself. But if he says anything, it gets you hear about it on Twitter or on the news or anywhere else. I think I don't ever see them. So I think I must not follow enough right wing Mm. people, you know, Republicans in order to see those. Because, of course, people, Democrats are not going to be uh, probably posting those. Yeah, so I never see them. So I'm, I need to start following all the people you follow so that I can start seeing these things. But, you know, I think two things here for Donald Trump and Twitter. One, I think it's, you know, definitely he's got his Truth Social. I don't even know what's going on with Truth Social. I signed up for it, I think, when it was in when it was like in waiting. You know, you sign up and, oh, in two months we're releasing right. Truth Social or something. I think they did launch I never heard anything about it. I don't know how to even get on it. Are, are you are, are you on it? Are you familiar no, with it? No, it sounds like it's going just as well as like Trump University. CNN Plus. Right. <laughs> or CNN Plus. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like uh, it's really taking the world by storm. That's um, right. So I don't think Truth Social is going anywhere. I but I also either. think he has a reason to stay off Twitter for reasons you've mentioned already, which is that he, he might... And maybe strategists around him are saying, look, you're better off not on Twitter. Your image is actually increasing. People are having fonder memories of you because it's like out of sight, out of mind. And then we all kind of do this, right? When we look back with a little bit more nostalgia, things start to get sugarcoated a little bit. And so when we're not hearing from him every day with his Twitter thumbs, uh, then people look back and say, oh, I miss Trump. He did, you know, X, Y, Z, kind of forgetting all of the bad. And so if he were to then go back out there with Twitter every day in our faces saying crazy wild things, it might turn off a lot of people. So maybe he's getting some, right. final, maybe he's actually finally taking some strategy advice. Well, and it, and it gives the image. Democrats their missing piece of the puzzle. They have an enthusiasm gap. They're not enthusiastic about restoring Democrats to power. And the one thing it, it's true for it's as true for their mobilization efforts as it is for, you know, CNN ratings. Right. They need Trump. They need Trump as their boogeyman. Yeah. So the quieter he is, the, the more poorly that goes. Now, the idea of him actually listening to advisors and taking their advice, you say maybe you should just not tweet for a while. It's hard to. But may, maybe you're right. Maybe he is. He is taking that to heart. Or, or maybe it's like, a, no, you uh, you know, you insulted me by taking me off. I'm not going to you know, frequent this company anymore, but even though it's a different 
different management. Yeah, but. I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's like, I, I don't know if he's, if he's like that. I don't think he's like a vindictive. <laughs> I think he forgets too quick and he's too self, you know, he's too self-absorbed and self, he's like, oh, yeah. oh, I can be in the public spotlight. I would think though, it is absolutely better for him to stay away. And you bring up really great reasons just to keep harming Democrats, if that's what the Republican agenda and Trump's agenda is. If he wants, you know, revenge on Democrats and CNN and all of them, the best way to do it is to not give them any fodder, right? right. Don't give them any any of this um, because they will. They'll just go, you know, CNN's ratings will increase as soon as Trump's back on Twitter. Does he right. really want that? Right, right. That's the main reason I always thought the idea that like social media is only, you know, working in unison in order to help Democrats. Obviously, certain people who work for the companies prefer Democrats and they do things, various things that I think were wrong or you know, maybe helped them or were biased against uh, the right, you know, the Hunter Biden laptop story, other things. But they're clearly not giving it their absolute all because if they were, they would put Trump back on the platform because that right. would remind Democrats what they're fighting against. And uh, they decided not to do that. They're more motivated, I think, they don't want to be yelled at by the, the mainstream media or you know being accused of causing harassment or misinformation or causing violence. So even, even if those accusations are not very well thought out, they're just like, okay, yeah. no, we're, we're gonna, we, we're at, we hear you, we're not doing that, we're sorry, please don't regulate us, is I think they're, they're kind of operating. Here's um, Trump's actual statement. He made this to Fox News. He says, I'm not going on Twitter, I'm gonna stay on truth. I hope Elon buys Twitter because he'll make improvements to it and he's a good man, but I'm gonna be staying on truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I don't know anything about truth. I know that there was this big overarching, you know, they were gonna do something like Twitter. They were then gonna do something. I thought the other aspects of truth were more interesting. They were gonna mm -hmm. try to do something to compete with like Netflix um, and then something to compete, compete with like Amazon cloud services. Uh, they were gonna, and I thought that was more interesting because if you really wanna defeat the censorship game, then you need to own the infrastructure you can't just have the website. Um, I thought actually Elon, you know, I get he wants to buy Twitter, he bought Twitter, but I actually thought what he should have done was instead create a service to combat Amazon, their web hosting service, mm -hmm. uh, because they're kicking people off, you know, and also I thought he should launch a phone to compete with Apple's iPhone and then have an app store and then also, you know, not kick people off. Cause that was, I think when we saw Parler, for example, try to rise up and they were doing actually a really great job of rising up they then were booted from amazon they then were booted off of iphones right. you know out of at the apple store and i felt like that was actually the space if somebody really wants to make change they would they would need to develop and somebody like elon musk would have the ability and the money and the you know infrastructure the ability to create the infrastructure to do this would be to then create those those you know underlying infrastructure to allow people a space to build their own platforms and and have them available to the people so um which is what i think trump when i looked at the truth social you know the, or the truth i what are they the whole thing is called something different i truth something um and that they had like a branching out and truth social was one aspect of it and then they were like four other aspects. And I thought that was actually a pretty good strategy. So I'm curious how far he's going with that. Yeah. Well, you know, that I, don't know. No, I agree with you, though. The 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 uh, hosting uh, kind of the infrastructure is what is really concerning. Having that only in the hands of people who are 
more hostile to you know a range of viewpoints or, or are going to punish just one comedy? Because I I get why they were upset with Parler because of there there was you know like actual extremists being organized there, but it was also being organized on Facebook. And Facebook didn't right. get kicked out of the App Store. Like, everything right. you could say, right, sure, but then be fair about it, because this is happening on every social media platform right now. It is not at all unique to Parler. I think Parler, you know, was not, maybe not prepared for, for what, what was going to happen there, but it, you, you, you could find more of it, because the other sites were bigger. So there was more uh, bad behavior yep. going on, on on Facebook. So, so that was what felt pretty crooked about that, even if there okay. was nothing technically illegal about it. I found it. it's called Trump Media and Technology Group. That's the overarching company. Truth mm-hmm. Social is one of the little arms of this. And remember, this is now headed headed up by Devin Nunez. Is that right? He's the yeah. isn't he the CEO? Yeah. Of, of TMTG Media apparently is the is the company. So we'll see if they're. But yeah, I I think Donald Trump is. I think he'll eventually cave and come back to Twitter and he'll start off slow. Like, oh, I'm here, but I'm only here like once a week kind of a thing. I'm only going to tweet. But the thing about like, you know? n- like Nunez is a little bit hypocritical on this stuff because didn't he sue? There was a parody Twitter account that that uh, Republican strategist Liz Mayer created for him. And he like sued her for this parody account. Like, so I don't want to hear from him that he's all this whole free speech guy. Like he sued to have a, a, an account that was making fun of him taken down. He's for like hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> So it's it's a little that you know so many of the and that that's going to be interesting to see as, as this Elon Musk situation develops and the rights you know kind of riding high right now but a lot of it, you know it's easy to say oh there shouldn't be censorship of you know my guys my or my my viewpoints or whatever that well, okay that means people make fun of you you're not so, you're supposed to allow that too so we'll have yeah. to see yeah because there's a little bit of well, hypocrisy I think. All right, but place your bet. You think Trump goes back to Twitter, yes or no? Oh. How much money? If Twitter lets Trump back on, I think that, yes, I think he'll, he will reappear. Absolutely. I think, yeah. they're defi- I think Elon's definitely going to allow him back on. Well, that is, that is maybe tricky. I mean, we don't, like, Elon is a very mercurial figure, right? He could, he's bought Twitter. He could sit down with them and they could explain, okay, here's how it works and here's why we make the decisions we make. And he might say, yeah, okay, I don't want to change that much. Like, I, I think that's more yeah. likely then. Or he just moves on to some other project. He's got I, a lot. I, I, you think no he's going to designate 24 hours? He's just going to be all about Twitter? I mean, I'm not even sure I want that. The guy wants no. to wants us to colonize Mars. It, it, Twitter is a lesser <laughs> is a less important goal than that. Please, please don't, yeah. please, Elon, don't spend too much of your time trying to fix Twitter. I, I yeah. like would like it if it was different, but take us to Mars. That's the more important civilizational goal. I don't know. There's nothing appealing to me about moving to Mars. I mean, no matter how bad the Earth's climate gets, I don't I don't see how it could be worse than Mars's climate. But I I think if Elon does not reinstate Trump's account pretty much right away, everybody will call him out as a hypocrite. He has to do it. It, It's Mm. like the first thing he has to do in order to establish himself as a free speech platform. And, you know, within reason, nobody's thinking Twitter's going to become full on free speech, say whatever you want. Right. You know, within reason, some regulation. Do you think, there he's, gonna, sure, do you think but... he's gonna restore like Alex Jones account? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I would think All he would right, have well. to if he's going to be an and Milo Yiannopoulos, Milo Yiannopoulos and uh, who else has been banned off of Twitter? Lots of people. I think all of them um, will have to get restored unless they specifically called for the you know violence of mm-hmm. harming somebody, you know, actually said, 
let's all get together and do something really horrible to this person. That I think is when, you know, there, right. maybe he would say, okay, I can't put that person back on, but just their ideas and saying their ideas lead to people to behave a certain way. I don't know if you can really, I, I mean, we'll see what he does, but I think yeah. he'd have to start restoring accounts. Well, we'll have to see. We will all be right. paying attention to this certainly very yeah. eagerly and we'll have more rising right after this. Joe Rogan is back in the news. The podcast host recently shared on an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience that attempts to cancel him apparently backfired. According to Rogan, at the peak of the recent calls to push him off Spotify, he gained, get this, a whopping 2 million subscribers. In the same vein, Rogan, of course, couldn't resist weighing in on the failure of streaming service CNN+. Let's watch that. We're speaking on this day where uh, CNN... Yeah, CNN minus Plus just, went under. Just, oh, just CNN minus. CNN just went under. They it, spent $300 million. They got 10,000 subscribers. Imagine the hubris of thinking that something that people don't want for free, that you're going to charge money for it. We're going to have the Jake Tapper book club. Jake Tapper seems like a great guy. But, I mean, I feel like I don't have to pay for his book club. It's, it's I feel also, like you should put that on Twitter. It's, Oh, I mean, I do feel bad for the CNN plus people. There are a lot of people that work there. It wasn't, you know, the of course, it was definitely, you know, why did they think that people would pay for something they're not watching? But there were a lot of people who lost their jobs. (laughs) I know it. I know it. You know, and it's just insane. But it's crazy that Joe Rogan ends up gaining. You know, this is why those those cancel culture pushes. And this was from the Spotify employees wanting to oust Joe Rogan. They didn't want him there. They were mad. They, they, they thought, he, you know, just like what we were talking about with my uh, with what the Daily Beast was trying to write about right. here on the Hill saying, oh, employees one are gone. That's what was going on with Spotify. Employees wanting him gone, thinking he's misinformation and fringe with his views and he's got to go. And they tried to uprise and he gained two million subscribers. It's almost now. I mean, if you're wanting to gain subscribers, if you're wanting your company to grow, you should just have your like stage a pretend revolt in your company. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I, oh, I thought about this when my, yeah, when my, my books were coming out, uh, Andy No had a book come out around the same time and they, you know, they pro like they tried to shut down the library where it was being sold at the bookstore, right? Books aren't sold in libraries. They're rented in libraries or sold in bookstores. They tried to shut down the bookstore and of course, you know, led them selling a trillion copies. Well, someone would do that for me. Antifa, please come, come burn down the, the store where my book's okay. being sold Be, you, you know, know what? because of that. Now I know who did it. Now I know who planted the no. Daily Beast story. Now I know. No, <laughs> it was the executive good, producer. It was the executive producer of the show. She yeah. wants the show to grow. Yeah. So she was like, I got an idea. Let's let's Roganer. And if we, if yeah. we Rogan and Spotify her, then maybe it will grow. I see. Very clever, guys. Very, very clever. No, it's true. Uh, and actually, people who criticize the idea of cancel culture, you know, people who say, oh, cancel culture doesn't exist or it's no big deal or whatever, one of the things they'll use that's one of the better points that they make, even though I disagree with that, they'll say, well, a lot of people who are supposedly canceled actually do benefit from that kind yeah. of negative attention and come out stronger than ever. And that is true in ca- you know, Dave Chappelle type cases where, where all the cancelers succeed at is drawing more attention to the person and yeah. also making their ideas or their viewpoints seem 
dangerous or, or you know forbidden or oh, we can't let you hear this it's too scary like that is that's you know putting an x-rated label on a you know music for kids people want to listen to it then kids are like, what what do my parents not want me to listen to that's what i want to listen to it's right. that kind of uh, phenomenon but that only happens i think mostly for people who are already established and pretty economically insulated like you know when when you just get fired from your job because somebody complained that you made a hand gesture that they think is a white nationalist hand gesture even though it's not like that person doesn't end up with 2 million subscribers right they just right. they just lose right. their job and suffer for it so little people who are can I mean, normal regular people people who don't right. have other means of communicating when they're canceled it is really bad for them it's not bad in cases like this well, but hopefully as more higher profile people like Joe Rogan or Dave Chappelle, as people try to cancel them and then it backfires and it doesn't work, then hopefully bosses around the country will see that. And when somebody makes a complaint against a, a, another employee, they just say, well, you know, I, I, maybe they could somehow kind of weather the storm mm -hmm. a little bit rather than just automatically caving to cancel culture, which we saw really happen a lot early on. Now, I do feel like there's a bit more of an armor around people in companies where they're kind of like, I don't know. OK, yeah, right. Uh, you know, and they kind of move on beyond it. We're even seeing politicians do this whenever they're in, in you know, in a scandal. They start to just say, well, I'm just going to ride this out. Right. Like like a northam. Right. He's like, I'm just going to ride this out. I'm not going to let people uh, cancel me over this. Right. Um, and so. I, you know, I, I do think that society is starting to say, OK, yeah, you noisy group of people always saying you want to get rid of opposing views. We hear you, whatever you want to get rid of people because of something they, they did 30 years ago in a photograph. Like, OK, we're just moving on from that. I, I do think that the culture around cancel culture is shifting and people just aren't feeling as pressured. But I would like to see Dave Chappelle's numbers. Do you know? Did did it? I mean, I would imagine his special exploded after the after the controversy. I don't know I what the numbers are, but I'm it. quite confident. Yeah, it, it right. It it helped. It caused more yeah. people to want to watch it. People were like, "What is this? You know, what are people? People are talking about this. I want to see what that is. Like, that's a well known kind of effect that I that holds true. You want to generate a little bit of controversy. And actually, even the company, Netflix wants a little bit of controversy. A book publisher right. wants a little bit of controversy. They want the right, um, Spotify wants enough controversy, I'm sure, to bring in 2 million more subscribers. Million, they want yeah. the right amount of controversy. But then for some of these companies, not Spotify, which obviously, and Netflix, which, you know, both really stood well, Spotify completely and, and Netflix mostly, although it, I think it put out some kind of conflicting statements, but mostly these companies stood by the person. They want the right amount of controversy, and then if it, but then it will spire. If it gets too big, then they start to feel the pressure from their right. own employees, you know, the minority of employees who are very liberal and very censorship inclined, and then, and then they get in trouble. So it's a, I th it's a difficult, well. it's a difficult dance to keep, you know, to have the ball of outrage or, or concern be just big enough to actually be economically beneficial for you? Well, I mean, a lot of people went after Rogan. I mean, they tried. There were musicians who said, I'm off the platform. And, you know, there right. was definitely more like than just... Boomer, right, I said boomer right. magicians. Nobody cares what boomer magicians <laughs> do. Even less so than boomer musicians. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there was definitely an, an, an actual, I, I would say, a more threatening push against Joe Rogan, but it only yeah. helped him. I mean, two million extra subscribers. And even with like the Daily Beast article, you know, on Twitter, a lot of the people were commenting saying, I'd never heard of her, but thanks for pointing me out. I watched some videos and I like her and now I'm subscribed. So, so you, know, you it, it did often... it, Kim. It was you, Kim. 
Okay, I admit it. Oh, it was me. Uh-huh, I did it. Uh-huh. I planted my own smear story in order to boost my visibility. I did think it was it the butler. I think it was the butler. <laughs> the butler did it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, good. You know, good on Joe. Two million extra subscribers. Good on Spotify, Absolutely. I guess. That teaches them something too. Yeah. Well, and it shows. I hopefully that message will sink in that these kind of tactics against people like Joe Rogan, like Dave Chappelle. Not only do they not work, they backfire. They make the person more popular. So maybe you yeah. know people will <laughs> give up on this tactic. The only people you can really hurt are people who who you know don't deserve to have their whole livelihoods destroyed because they said the wrong thing or you know whatever it was. Ten so. years ago on Twitter. Right. Ten years right. ago on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back for another great show tomorrow on Rising. Yeah. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And those for those of you who like to listen on the go wherever you listen to podcasts be sure to check us out there um all right guys thanks so much for watching we will see you tomorrow see you bye tomorrow.